There's a story in the Old Testament. It's a very powerful moment. In this story that occurs in Exodus chapter 20, the people of God, they've just come out of Egypt where they've been slaves for many years. And they're wandering through the desert. And we're told that they come to a mountain. And and for a moment, God descends in some kind of physical form on the mountain. And we're told that it's like fire. We're told that it's like darkness at the same time. We're told that it's like thunder and lightning. And you can just imagine the scene. And then we read this. The people of God responding to the moment. Now just for a moment, before I read this, just imagine if you were one of them. One of the people of God standing before that mountain on that day. And you're seeing that, that actual thing take place. We read this in Exodus chapter 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you might not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, there's this lie in the world that we live in today. And it goes through not just the culture that we live in that we're saturated in, but it goes through sometimes the church as well. And the lie sounds something like this. God ultimately is tame. God is maybe some kind of all-accepting spirit. You can come to Him however you please. He expects literally nothing of you. Just be you. Be the most authentic version of you, and God's going to be happy with that because ultimately, He is a tame God. Philosophically, this makes God the ultimate postmodernist. He doesn't care. There's no specifics about what you believe or who you are or how you live. Just come to Him on your own terms, and He's going to be fine with that. Now that's almost believable until you stand before the mountain of God and you stand before His holiness. See, there in that moment as the people of God were coming out of Egypt and they stood before the holiness of God, they were suddenly confronted by the reality that our God is an all-consuming fire. They were suddenly confronted with the reality of of how big God is, of how great He is, and how weak and needy and sinful they are. And they were confronted with the separation that exists between them as they are and God as He is. And they knew it was right to be filled with a godly sense of fear. There's a famous book that was written called The Idea of the Holy. It has some very interesting ideas in it. The author Rudolf Otto describes... The the mystery of holiness and what should happen to us when we begin to get a sense of holiness about us. He says this, the truly mysterious or holy object is beyond our apprehension and comprehension because in it we come upon something inherently holy other whose kind and character are incommensurable with our own and before which we therefore recoil in a wonder that strikes us chill and numb. Now, when you consider the God that you love, the God that's given you life, the God that you serve as a follower of Christ, what comes to mind? Is there a rightful fear that lives inside of you about that God? 
Now, I want to make sure you're very clear what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about the kind of like horror movie fear where you're just trembling and you can't even move because you're so full of fear that somehow you're going to lose your salvation. That's not the kind of fear I'm talking about. In Jesus Christ, you can't lose your salvation. He secured it once and for all. He paid it all on the cross. What I'm talking about is a holy fear of the reality of who God is. The deep abiding respect that God deserves for who He is and for considering who He is in light of who you are. We're beginning this new sermon series for the next eight weeks. Now, I want to just bring us to a reminder of what we were studying before COVID-19 entered. We were in the middle of studying verse by verse through the book of Romans. And I want you to know I've got a half-written sermon on Romans chapter 9. I'm chomping at the bit to preach Romans 9, and we will get back to that at some point. But I think that will be best for us once we can gather together again, together as a people of God, as a gathered assembly. What, I, what we're going to begin today is a, a new series of messages through the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. It's through a specific section of the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that Jesus Christ gave himself called the Beatitudes, the very front section. Now, what is the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 5, verses, or Matthew chapter 5 through 7, uh, we, we see this sermon that Jesus gave. And this sermon has been critiqued by scholars of all ages. Everybody looks at this sermon and says, this is perhaps the most insightful, profound, in-depth series of discussions of what ethics ought to look like. And that's exactly what it is. The Sermon on the Mount is what the ethics of the people of God ought to look like. It describes the heart posture of the people of God. It describes how we ought to relate to God. It describes how we ought to relate to other people and what it means to truly live as a follower of Christ. How ought we to live? How ought our ethic to be in the midst of a watching world? And, and this is not just the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just some future unattainable ethic. This is actually, when we read this, what our lives ought to look like. You read the Sermon on the Mount and you should be confronted with the reality that Jesus has a plan for your life and that we ought to be living in accordance with it or at least desiring to live in accordance with it. And the sermon begins with these beatitudes, these eight short statements that start with the word blessed. Beatitude simply means blessing. These eight beatitudes are literally the entryway into the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to understand the whole Sermon on the Mount, you've got to go through the beatitudes. They, they're like the doorway to get into the Sermon on the Mount. So what I want to do right now is I want to read the beatitudes, all eight of them to us. And then today, we're going to look at just the first one. And each of the next eight weeks, we're going to take one beatitude and unlock what they mean for us as followers of Christ. So here we go, the eight beatitudes. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, 
They stop right there, and I want you to just think about the words you just saw. At some point today, it might be a good exercise for you to take just five minutes of quietness and and look over those Beatitudes and ask yourself, are these true of me? Even without a full, in-depth understanding of what they mean in detail, you should be able to get a sense for what Jesus says the blessed life is. And you can begin to ask the question, is this true of me? Now, a couple notes about these eight Beatitudes. It's divided into two sections. The first four Beatitudes are really talking about our our vertical relationship with God. Blessed are you if your relationship with God looks this way. This is what it looks like to be blessed. And then the next four are about your horizontal relationship with other people. If you want to live a blessed life, this is how you ought to treat other people. This is how you ought to relate to other people. This is how you ought to think about yourself in comparison to other people. And so the full blessed life takes into account vertically who we are in our relationship to God and then horizontally how we relate to other people. Secondly, these eight Beatitudes come in a very particular order. And this is so important to unlock the the meaning of the Beatitudes. They come in a sequential order. And, And you can't understand Beatitude number two unless you first go through Beatitude number one. So you can't understand what it means to mourn in the sense, that's what the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. You can't fully get that until you go through, blessed are the poor in spirit. They build on top of one one another. And so for us today, what that means is if we want to understand the fullness of the Sermon on the Mount, this gateway, right? This gateway that gets us into the ethics of the kingdom of God as a people. We've got to go through the beatitudes and the place where they start the very first gateway to actually enter in is beatitude number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So let me be very clear with us as we get into this new series of messages. If you want to live the blessed life, if you want to live in all the power of what God has made you for, and you want to live a life of full satisfaction where you know in, the, in your bones that you are alive and that you are well and that it is right with you and God and that you're living as God has made you to live. And you want to put off the things of this world and you want to live for God fully. And if you've been asking for so long, why is there not more in my life? Why is there not more power in my life? Like what I see the apostles living in in the book of Acts. Why is there not more prayer saturation in my life? Why is there not more miracle in my life? If you want all that, you got to go through the Beatitudes. And you got to do them in order. And you have to take the time to reflect on them meaningfully. And it all starts with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's start with that first word. Good place to start. Blessed. What does blessed mean? Let's break it apart. The word blessed blessed or blessed is a term that I think is completely abused both within the church and outside of the church. To be blessed. If you look at, frankly, all the descriptors of what the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Nobody says they're blessed when they're experiencing those things, at least in the conversations that I'm in on a regular day-to-day basis in the 21st century Western world that we live in. Very few people inside and outside the church would, would say, if you were to say to them, tell me, what does it mean to be blessed? Even within the church, very few people would say, to be blessed is to be poor in spirit. To be blessed, well, that's to mourn properly. No, that's not what we hear. In fact, so often what we hear is the exact opposite of that. No one one looks at these and thinks these are the qualifications of what gets you to the blessed life. 
which tells us that something must be fundamentally wrong with us, doesn't it? I mean, if that isn't how you've been thinking about the blessed life through these Beatitudes, but you've been thinking about blessing in the blessed life as something totally other than this, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe we do need a season of reformation within the church to get back to Jesus' terms. On the flip side, how many of us have not just had, not, not just said, well, the blessed life isn't uh, to be poor in spirit, but how many of us have applied the word blessed to situations in our life that were totally materialistic, totally self-centered, totally financial, and totally all about us? You know, I was... Uh, I went to the airport a couple months ago and all the flights were delayed, but man, I made it on my flight and my flight was like one of the only ones that wasn't delayed. Oh, I was so blessed. I know you hear that kind of stuff all the time because I hear it all the time and sometimes I even hear it coming out of my own mouth. Now, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, that story, but I think it's true. We abuse the term blessed. So what does blessed mean? To be blessed is not just to be happy, though happiness is part of it. God does desire to get a hold of your affections. He wants to give you a joyful, affectionate pursuit of him. But to be blessed is more than just happiness. To be blessed is to live in the full life of knowing deep inside your soul that it is well with your soul. That you have been freed from the, the pains of this world. Not that they don't impact you, but that you have a rock that you stand on. And he knows you and you're right with God and your soul is well. And whatever comes your way, there's a deep abiding sense of contentment. There's a deep abiding sense of joy in who you are and who God has declared you to be in Jesus Christ. There's a deep sense of contentment that you're not constantly chasing the next best thing. You're not constantly chasing a little bit more money or a, a little bit of a bigger house or a little bit of a better kitchen or a few more friends. Or you're, you're just content. And tomorrow you're content. And the day after that you're content. That, see, that's the blessed life. It's knowing who you are in God, knowing His promises for your life, and living in the richness of it all. That's the blessed life. And he starts this way, blessed. This is how you get that. If you want that in your life, here it is. Ready? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean? Poor in spirit. Well, the first thing we see is that he qualifies the term poor. He doesn't just say blessed are the poor. He says poor in spirit. And so this is not a financial thing. You aren't more or less blessed if you're poor or if you have a lot of money. It has nothing to do with how much financial money you have or don't have. That's not it. He's talking about spiritual poverty, not physical poverty. And the heart of Christianity begins with understanding the poor in spirit. The entire Sermon on the Mount starts with this entryway. To be spiritually poor is to stand before a holy God and acknowledge the reality that you do not belong in His presence. That's spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty is, is to acknowledge that you have deep inside of you a desperate need of someone else to act on your behalf because when you rightly evaluate the condition of your soul apart from God intervening for you and when you rightly see the majesty and the holiness and the greatness and the authority of our God who is a judge and you compare the two, it should cause us to go to a place of deep brokenness over the reality of our sin before a holy God. And not just before a holy God, but before a good God. And we should weep over our sin. That's next week. That's what it means to mourn. But first, we should take a posture of saying, I don't even belong in your presence. And it's not just giving lip service to that. 
What I'm talking about is, is deep. I've said this before, but deep in your bones, deep in your soul, having an awareness of the holiness of God and an awareness, a rightful understanding of the depth of your own wretchedness. That's Bible language. And actually saying, you know what? It's true. I don't belong in His presence. He's too great and I'm too broken. It's seeing the majesty of God and the sinfulness of us and seeing that vast separation and being brought to a place where you say, if God doesn't do something, I'm utterly lost. That's spiritual poverty. And there's perhaps nothing more clear-cut that divides the Christian heart from the heart of the world, is there? Than spiritual poverty. It's the world that says the exact opposite of this. The world hates spiritually poor and broken people. The antithesis of spiritual poverty is spiritual wealth. And quite literally, every other religious system, including atheism and agnosticism and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism, all of it, everything but Christianity, teaches a message of spiritual wealth. You be strong. Here's what you do. You, you got to earn your way. You got to make your way. You got to do these certain religious practices if you want to be made right with God. It says nothing about getting on your knees before a holy God and acknowledging your brokenness that you can't make it on your own. Spiritual wealth says if I do enough, I can make it. I had a fascinating conversation. A few weeks before COVID-19 began, I was out evangelizing in Millennium Park with a fellow pastor at Park. I came across a young man who was sitting there smoking a cigarette. And I asked him a few questions about God. I said, hey, tell me your thoughts on God. And he began to share with me that he was a, a young Muslim man uh, he was visiting Chicago on a business trip, and, and he, uh, he began to explain to me about Islam. And after he told me about Islam, I, I, I said to him, hey, you know, you're smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Isn't that kind of against the rules in Islam? And he chuckled a little bit. He said, yeah. I said, well, how's that going to work out for you? Tell me, are, are you right with God today? Have you done enough to be right with God? You know what he said? He said, no, I haven't. He said, but you know, someone once told me that before I die, if I just go out and I plant a tree, and I, I, I do something that just inserts good into the world, if I, do so, if I plant a tree right before I die, maybe that'll be just enough merit, just enough of me doing something to earn favor with God to get me over the edge. And I responded to him a little sarcastically, but poignantly. I said, well, I hope you don't die today. Because if you're banking on you planting a tree the moment before you die to make sure you're right with God, that you've done enough to get right with Him, well, I hope you got plenty of time before that day comes. And I began to share the gospel with him that just maybe there's someone else who's done something for you on your behalf to earn favor that you could never earn on God's, on God's behalf. See, every religion has their list of how to achieve salvation. You go here, you do this, you pray this many prayers... And honestly, one of my fears is that we've dragged that mentality into the church with us. And, and the way I see it, honestly, the way I see it is, is in our lethargy to God. In our lack of passion for Jesus. You know, when you live your life with a lack of passion for Jesus, but then you go to church, right? So you're going to church, and you're doing some of the things that the, that the world knows Christians are about these things, Right? So you're going to church, and, and maybe let's say you're not smoking. I, that, even that's not, I, I hate equating that with, that's a terrible example. You're doing, let's say you're doing something that other people equate with Christianity, right? 
But when they don't see a passion in your life for Jesus that's all-encompassing, what they're seeing in you is that there's not really something that's gotten into your bones yet about being spiritually broken before a holy God. And then all they see in your life is that really what you kind of believe is if I do these Christian things, if I go to church, if I jump on the Zoom calls that my pastor tells me to jump on, if I show up at all the right places, then God's going to be pleased with me. Maybe I've done enough stuff to earn favor with him. And the rest of the world looks on that kind of Christianity and they lump it together. And that's why you hear the modern lie that all religions are basically the same. But they're not. They're fundamentally different. And Christianity is fundamentally different than every other religion. It's not about what you do to get made right with God. It's about who you recognize you are before a holy God. And you must come before God as spiritually poor. Completely broken before a holy God. Let me give you an example of this in Scripture. I oftentimes cite this passage because there's so much richness in this passage in Isaiah chapter 6. This is a picture for us of spiritual poverty. Isaiah chapter 6, the young prophet Isaiah suddenly finds himself caught up in the throne room of God. Now, can you imagine that? I, I just, just for a second, imagine you today, as you are right now, and you suddenly find yourself standing before God in all His fullness, in all His majesty. What would you do? Well, let me describe the scene to you. Isaiah writes this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. You know, the Lord sits on a throne. He's seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, by the way. That's what he's seeing. Jesus sitting on his throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Can you imagine that? Come on, start to imagine the majesty of this scene. His train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. That's an angelic living creature that is alive right now. And you should be afraid of the seraphim. You know why? Listen to their description. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation, listen to this, the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. That means when, when, when Jesus began to spoke in that scene, that the room they were in shook as if it was a, a magnitude 10 earthquake. Now, if you were in that moment, what would you do? See, sometimes we read that. And our, our image is that what we're doing is we're reading children's literature. And we just read it and we don't think anything about it. That's not children's literature. That's what the throne room of God is. The seraphim right now are around the throne room of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now if that description of the throne room of God doesn't make you terrified, then I don't know if you know how to read the Bible. I don't know if the Spirit of God is, is welling up in you yet. Because listen to what happens to Isaiah when he recognizes what's going on in that scene. He falls down. He says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. 
The word is, I am undone. It means I'm coming apart at the seams. It's a way for him to say, I don't know how to describe this, but I don't belong here. This is too holy for me. I'm too wretched. Woe is me. And then this one says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That spiritual poverty. That's spiritual poverty. You want to know what Jesus is getting after when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit? Look at Isaiah standing before the holiness of God, shouting out, woe is me, I am undone. That is spiritual poverty. It's that moment when you suddenly realize that God is not tame, that he is so much bigger than you would ever dream he was. And it's that moment when at the same time you recognize that you are so much more wretched and full of sin than you ever dare admit to anybody. But God knows it all. And when he sees through you, And then suddenly you realize that he's seeing through you, that you fall down before that holy God and you shout something along the lines of what Isaiah said and you cry out, woe is me for I am undone because I am also a man of unclean lips. That's spiritual poverty. It's when you recognize that you weren't just a good kid who just added Jesus on, but you were an enemy of God. Your sin had set you up in such a way that you were an enemy. That's what Romans says. Remember, we've studied this already in Romans. Romans chapter 5, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we also be saved by His life. We were enemies because we had been living a life of rebellion to the goodness and the greatness and the majesty of God. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear. Spiritual poverty is not self-hatred. It's not it. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not thinking that somehow as a human you have no value, you have no dignity, you have no worth. No, you're made in the image of God. Therefore, you have value, you have dignity, you have worth. Those are all things that are promised to you. It's not a form of self-hatred. That's not spiritual poverty. Don't confuse the old monks who used to go around whipping themselves with with spiritual poverty. That was a mistake. It's also not, spiritual poverty is also not to be confused for those who just by nature have more of a meekness and a gentleness about them. Which, by the way, is not me. (laughs) Okay? It's not a personality trait. I know there are some wonderful people who have amazing spiritual gifts and who will be used by God to shake the earth, who will shake the kingdom of God. And they very naturally are very quiet. They very naturally do not like to be necessarily upfront, are not gifted at leading upfront. But man, when they pray and when they serve behind the scenes, the, the, the heavens shake. But that personality trait and that spiritual gifting is not what I'm talking about with spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty is an awareness deep inside of your soul that you are different than a holy God, you are full of sin, and that you are broken, but for God intervening on your life. Now, I know that this all sounds so counterintuitive because the world is constantly telling us that you are good, that you're strong, that you're great. Just keep getting after you and be the most authentic version of you. Just Do that and you can overcome in this world. But that's not the gospel. The gospel starts with recognizing that we are poor in spirit and separated from God and then looking to the one who is able to do something about it. 
See, this is when the hope of God gets really good. If you've never had an excitement about Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, maybe it's because you never took the time to actually realize your own wretchedness and your state before that holy God and and sit in the reality that you don't deserve heaven. That it's not like God's just, you're good, come in, but you actually bring sin to him. And then when you know that, then you look to what Jesus has done on the cross on your behalf. And you can't help but fall on your knees in worship. You can't help but look at Jesus, God in the flesh, entering into your brokenness. The one who sits on that throne. Remember his train filled the entire room, the train of his robe, and and the angels were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That God stepped into human flesh in order to rescue you from your sinful condition. He went on a cross, and this is incredible. He actually died. You know, do you ever reflect on that? The King of Kings, the Lord who sits on the throne in Isaiah 6, we killed him. You want to talk about depravity and sin? We killed him. And you were part of that. You were part of that legacy of sin that, 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 that hung the, the King of the Kings on that cross. But what was happening in that moment is that his blood was paying an infinite price for your sin. He was offering forgiveness. He was paying the penalty for the separation that we created between us and a holy God. And if you would just place your faith in Jesus, the promises are that he looks down on you no longer as a sinner separated from him, but as a son adopted into his family, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's that good. And it's free. It's a gift of grace. You can't earn it. You can't plant enough trees. You can't go on enough trips. You can't climb enough mountains. You can't give away enough money. you got to get on your knees and recognize your enemy status before a holy God and then receive free grace. Grace upon grace upon grace for sinners like us. That's the gospel. See, what the world needs to see is a handful of people that are leaping in the streets in the midst of COVID-19, that are joy-filled, passionate about the gospel because Jesus saved a wretch like us and no matter the circumstance, we've got a deep abiding sense of joy that cannot be taken away because God says, you didn't earn my love, Jesus earned it on your behalf and he ain't gonna take it away and your soul is good. That's the blessed life. And the world's gotta see a couple people living that way. Look up, church. That's what we have to do. We have to look up at the greatness of our God. We've got to stop looking in towards our own greatness as if we're something to boast about. We've got to look up to His greatness. We've got to look up at His throne and we have to tremble. Why? Because we know that we're full of sin. And then we've got to look up at the cross and we've got to see the blood dripping down that stake that was put in the ground and we have to worship before the throne of Jesus Christ and say, it's all too wonderful for me. We've got to look up and think much bigger thoughts about God. Our thoughts of God are far, far, far too small. Look up at His holiness. Look up at His eternality, His sovereignty, His omnipresence, His his omnipotence, His love, His grace, His judgment. The fact that He holds the keys to death and life itself. And then see Jesus And know that he loves you in your broken current state. That even on your worst day, if your faith is in Christ, 
You're a son of the king. You're a daughter of the king. He's prepared an inheritance for you that cannot be taken away and he's given you the spirit and the full power and he's not going to take that away either. We've got to think bigger thoughts about God. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It all gets given to you when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now how do we apply this? Church, Kenson mentioned at the beginning of this, I believe that we are in a season where we're about to see a lot of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. I really do. I believe that brokenness and this level of brokenness is softening hearts to such a degree that people are going to be crying for truth. Not for the lies and the small things they've been believing and putting their faith in their own selves and their own homes and their own jobs, but for the living God, what they were made for. And the church has to be ready for that. And so to do that, we need to have a season of repentance. Honestly, we just need to. We need to repent of our lethargy. We need to repent of our lack of passion. We need to repent, some of us for the first time, honestly, some of us, even in the church who have been around for a long time, need to repent for the first time and say, I didn't get it. I never actually wrestled with my wretchedness. And I never fully got excited about the gospel because I've been coming to church so long, it just all became rote and I forgot. It's about the gospel and the greatness of Jesus. And we need to start with repentance. Will you join us this Wednesday? I know some of you hear the word fast. We're going to fast on Wednesday this week. And you just tune out. Don't. Don't, don't tune out. Fast with us, if you're able. Take a day and remove yourself from eating for a day. It's a practice that the saints in the Bible did all the time. And what it does is it prepares your heart to hear from Him. And as you feel those hunger pains inside throughout the day, you remember, man, I need God far more than I need food. He is the true living bread from heaven. He is the one that gives me life. And we pray throughout the day, and then we're going to come together at night, that night, and we're going to pray together a prayer of repentance. Will you join us in that? Be a part of that. I know it's just one simple step, but I believe it's an important step for all of us as a church to participate in. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18 of two contrasting men. A Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. Those who led all the prayers and all the religious stuff and the responsibilities in the temple at the time. And the tax collectors were considered the chief of sinners. I mean, anytime they put a list together of the most sinful people in that day, tax collectors were always at the top. By the way, one of Jesus' disciples was a tax collector. Shows you the kind of people that Jesus picks, right? He picks people who are broken. But listen to this parable Jesus tells. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You hear the spiritual wealth in that man's voice? He was the religious leader of the day. Now listen to the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, signifying that he knew he, didn't even, he, he shouldn't even be close, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, beat his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray. Father, I pray, I pray right now for each person listening to this, whether it's on this Sunday morning or it's days afterwards online, that anyone who is hearing this message would believe in the Gospel, would have their spirit renewed in the reality of the fact that Jesus died for them on the cross if they would just place their faith in Him. And that He has called them not to just go through the motions of religion, but to have a passionate pursuit of Jesus in their life that is compelling to everyone looking in. And God, I pray in this season, I pray for a great harvest in the church. God, I pray that many people who are asking difficult questions would meet a Christian who would tell them about Jesus. God, would you help us? Would you form spiritual poverty in us this week, I pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.